Our gospel lesson this morning is from Matthew 11, verses 1 through 11. This can be found on page 1516 in your pew Bibles. And this is at that period of overlap between the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus. And uh, John the Baptist had been preparing the way for the one who was to come, and Jesus being that one who was to come. And yet at this point, John is in prison and kind of wondering about that, if maybe he had it a little off. So here we go. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made, and we thank you for your word that you have given to us. Lord, we ask that, um, that you would help us this morning to be shaped more by your word than we are by this world. Lord, we ask that you would give us uh, your vision for what life is about and what it's really like and where it's all headed. God, that you would open our eyes to the ways in which we have been blind to, um, to your activity in our own lives. Lord, we pray that you would heal the brokenness in our hearts, the brokenness in our relationships with you and with each other. Lord, we pray that you would give us ears that are uh, no longer deaf to your word, but that hear what you are saying to your people today. God, that we would be changed even more today in the people that you created us to be in relationship with you through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Matthew 11, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And turning to James chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, which can be found on page 1884 in your pew Bibles. Using an agricultural illustration, James writes, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. 
Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I mentioned last week that, uh, that peace is one of those that's, uh, topics that's difficult to talk about because you run into the temptation or the risk is high that you'll be heard to be saying, you know, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And so as soon as you start talking about peace, everybody immediately has examples that spring to mind of the lack of peace that we actually experience in this world and even on a day-to-day basis. Uh, The same is true when we come to joy, and especially during this season of Advent when um, we are entering this whole holiday season. We had Thanksgiving, we have Christmas coming up and New Year's, and so at this time where griefs and sorrows seem to hit us the hardest, we have on on the church calendar a date to talk about joy. And it's a hard one because we say, I don't I don't feel like talking about joy right now. <laughs> right now, I am being reminded too closely about, um, about my sorrows, about my sighings, about the ways in which this world is not what it's supposed to be, not what I expected it to be, certainly not what I hoped it was going to be. And yet, here we are. And the message for the day is joy. Yes, it is. And here's the thing. And we saw some in this video, which I think did an excellent job of uh, talking about this whole topic. Biblically, we have the message of joy running all through the Bible. We saw some of that already. And here's the thing. The Bible does not minimize our sorrows, our griefs, our pains, our heartaches, any of that. It doesn't minimize at all. And yet, there's this recurring message of joy, joy, joy. I want you to know, we're going to read from Isaiah and his vision of what's coming. Isaiah is not stupid. He's not an idiot. God is not foolish. In fact, in uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom. So even if we read this and we go, that doesn't make any sense. God, what are you doing? Surely we would believe he knows better than we do. And even if what he's doing seems to not make sense to us, his ways are right. (laughs) And if it doesn't make sense to us, it's probably because we're thinking about it wrong, not him. So if he says we can have joy even in the midst of sorrow, maybe he knows what he's talking about. So here we have it. Isaiah Chapter 35, this is the vision, uh, and something you need to know contextually, this comes right on the heels of Isaiah 34. That's how numbers work. Anyway, so Isaiah 34, he's talking about how everything is going to be bad. It's going to be really bad. That uh, the whole land, you know, people will be dying. There will be uh, land that does not grow anything anymore. And it's almost like we're going back to um, the curse in the Garden of Eden when everything was growing and everything was good and and, they're working the uh, the garden and it's producing and it's wonderful. And then they turn away from God and God says, now part of what's going to result from this is that you're going to work the land still, 
But now it's going to be hard. Now the thorns and thistles are going to grow up instead of the crops you're trying to, and you're going to have to fight all these weeds that are coming through, and it's not going to come up easily anymore. And now this is like an extension of that. Like now it goes even farther than that, and now it just doesn't grow anything at all. That's how bad it's going to be. And then, and so you have this whole desert uh, situation. And then it says, verse 30, or chapter 35 though, that's not the end of the story. That here's what's coming. And it says, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice, there's that word, and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen. the fe- Wait, Hang on, before we go any farther, let me just talk about that section right there. All of that is, Im- is imagining this desert wilderness where the rain has not come down and it has dried out and nothing is growing. I don't know if you've ever experienced dry land, Anybody? No? Just me? Okay. It's not good. <laughs> you know that. When we first moved here, actually before we moved here, when we were just visiting the <laughs> first time, uh, I can't remember who it was we were talking with, but we were driving around getting uh, a tour at some point, and there were a variety of times that happened throughout the weekend. And at some point, somebody asked, how does this compare to what you expected? And Diana said, it's a lot greener than I expected it to be. And the response was, oh, it just rained. It never looks like this. <laughs> and, then, and then we moved here, and we found out that was an accurate statement. <laughs> uh, but that's how it goes, is when the rains stop, everything dies, and everything turns brown, and nothing grows without a considerable effort. And then all of a sudden, but it's like this, uh, this whole area, is, it's ready, though. Like, it is ready to just grow and to burst forth. And all that needs to happen is to get the right amount of rain at the right time. And suddenly, boom, (laughs) it's like everything comes alive at once. That's the image going on here. And when it talks about the glory of Lebanon and the splendor of Carmel and Sharon, you guys know about Lebanon and Carmel and Sharon, right? Probably not. But these are areas in Israel that were known for their huge trees. That's Lebanon and Carmel and Sharon for being places with lots of vegetation and uh, plants and things, not like the wilderness on the other side of the Jordan. And so it's saying when people think about those places, they think about this overgrowth of life and flourishing. And it says the wilderness is going to experience that. The desert is going to experience that. That it's going to burst forth with life. This is the image going on here. That even these uh, areas that seem so dead and dry and inhospitable for life, no more. And it burst forth. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Okay, we continue. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. And say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Now, this is a weird section here because at first it sounds like he's talking to those who are, um, who are having those, like talks about it in, in Joshua a lot, of people who have their hearts melting with fear who are looking forward to what is coming and thinking it's going to be nothing but bad. 
That's what's coming. And so it's saying to people like that, hold on. (laughs) I know that you're having trouble even standing, having the weak knees because you're so afraid of what's just around the corner. And it says, no. (laughs) Stand up. Be strong. Don't be afraid because your God is coming. And you go, yay! And then it says, but he's coming (laughs) with vengeance. And you go, no! (laughs) And he's coming with divine retribution. In other words, to pay back those wrongs that have been done. And you go, oh, no. (laughs) But then it says, he's doing that. He's coming to save you. This is the idea that while we all have turned away, that uh, we have, he's coming to set all those wrongs right again, but he's not doing that out of hatred. He's doing that out of love and concern for you. The The reason why we experience the sorrows and the griefs and the pains and all that in this life is because the whole creation is broken down. Everything has broken down. Our relationships with God have broken down. That has broken down our relationships with each other and with the world. It's all broken. And he's going to come and put it all right again. And so when that happens, he's going to come and he's going to judge all the sinfulness of the world. That's what it means for him to come with divine retribution. That's what it means for him to come with vengeance to say this thing that is wrong is really wrong. And I'm doing away with it. And he says, but I'm doing that not to get rid of you, but to save you, to save you even from that wrong that is in you. Now that's been one of the uh, big questions. How in the world can that happen? How can God come and get rid of the evil in you without getting rid of you? And that's the good news of Jesus. (laughs) That he came to die for us. That he takes our evil, ours, on him, and then it is judged there at the cross. So we don't have to be judged with that again. That that is something he comes to get rid of, and he came, and he got rid of it. He did it to save us. I hope you're seeing where this good news brings great joy that the angels announced the shepherds. This is where this is. This is uh, starting verse 5, then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. hope you're seeing the same imagery coming through again and again of how Uh, life will be where life didn't used to be. That healing will be where brokenness used to be. And so when it talks about the, uh, the mute tongue shouting for joy, can you imagine your whole life not being able to speak at all and having so much you want to say and then all of a sudden having that taken away? To where your mouth works. What are you gonna what are you gonna say then? You're gonna shout with joy. You're gonna shout with joy. And the if you your whole life have not been able to walk and suddenly you can walk, you're gonna leap like a deer. We actually see this in Acts where someone is healed and they go leaping through. <laughs> it's great. And that's what happens. And so it's not this a matter of, you know, gradually getting a little bit better and better. This is a suddenly things are just dramatically different. And there is life where there didn't used to be life. And there's healing where there used to be brokenness. And this is the sign 
that Jesus gives to John the Baptist. We just read in Matthew. John the Baptist sitting there in prison going, you know, I thought (laughs) that he was the one. But if he's the one, why am I in prison? So sends some of his own people and says, we go check with that Jesus guy and ask him, just point blank ask him, are you the one or is there somebody else? And what's really funny in the way that uh, Matthew writes this, he actually says, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one? Did you hear how Matthew wrote it? He doesn't say when he heard about the deeds of Jesus, says when he heard about the deeds of the Messiah. In other words, Matthew is making this perfectly clear. Now, he is the one. <laughs> John is a little confused on it right now, but don't you be confused. He is the one. And then the way that Jesus answered him is by saying, look at what's going on. What's going on right now around me is the stuff that Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years ago, that that's what was going to happen. And that is what is happening. Any further questions? <laughs> This is, what it, uh, this is what it's about. Verse 8, And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. What a great vision for the way that things will be. This highway that will be there, I read in a commentary that in the desert back then, I mean, you can drive through today through Arizona, through Utah, and there are highways in the desert. We just do that now. They didn't do that back then. It would have been a waste of money. It would have been a waste of time, and it would have been a waste of life. Uh, People would have died making these kinds of roads, and why would you do it? And so, it says, but now there's going to be a highway there because it's not going to be a wilderness anymore. It's not going to be this desert anymore. It's going to be a place of life and of abundance, and there's going to be a highway. And the highway was there as a transportation route to get to Jerusalem, to this Zion, to this place uh, that symbolizes the dwelling place of God. So this highway is the way to God. He says, that's what's going to be there. Does that sound familiar to anybody? In John chapter 14, when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, the disciples ask him, how, how do we get there? How do we, we don't even know the way. And Jesus says, you go out and you take a, no, he doesn't say that. He says, I am the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When we talk about this good news that brings great joy for all people, we're talking about Jesus who is himself this highway in what used to be a desert the one who brings life everywhere he goes, who brings healing instead of brokenness, and who makes the way for uh, us to be able to come to God the Father through him. This is what it's about. And then we have that uh, 
that beautiful final line. Uh, oh, wait, one more thing. Those the Lord has rescued will return. This word of rescue, when it said earlier that he's coming with vengeance and divine retribution, he will come to save you. And we have this idea of rescue. In Hebrews, it talks about uh, those who all... Hang on. Let me get it exactly right. So since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, by the way, have flesh and blood, he too, that's Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those, free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That this is part of what this is all talking about, is this rescue of our being in slavery, sin and death, in slavery by our fear of death. And he sets us free from that. He rescues us. I saw a movie recently. If you have, um, if you've not seen it, you can think through it and wonder what in the world I'm doing watching stuff like this. But it's the movie Taken with Liam Neeson. Anybody seen that? Yeah? It, pretty popular a few years ago. Uh, it's a movie about a man whose daughter is abducted, and he goes around killing way too many people um, to rescue her. She has been... Uh, captured and sold into sex slavery and uh that's the whole idea of the movie and he spends the whole time going to get her back and of course the whole movie uh she has done exactly what he told her he didn't want her to do and she does it and that's why she ends up where she is and this whole time i'm watching this movie i'm like oh my goodness (laughs) she's us (laughs) she's us we're the ones who have done what we weren't supposed to do and look where it's gotten us And yet, in this movie, this father, which I don't think this was written as a Christian movie, but my goodness. Anyway, (laughs) uh, but this father who loves his daughter so much, he's going to stop at nothing until he gets her back and she's safe with him again. And so you get to this final scene. I'm going to ruin the movie for you right now. I'm sorry. That's just how it's going to go. You've had like 10 years to see it, and you didn't. So at the end of the movie, they are reunited. And the bad stuff has gone away, and they are together again. And, I mean, it's just fall into each other's arms. And, um, and he says, or she says to him, you, you came for me. And he says, I told you I would. And in this moment, it is like the parable of the prodigal son <laughs> that Jesus tells, where the son has gone away, and he's done exactly what he's not supposed to do. And that's why he's in the hard place that he's in. And yet when he comes home, he doesn't get the punishment. He doesn't get the condemnation. What he gets is his father running to him and wrapping his arms around him and putting his robe on him and his, uh, the ring on his finger and saying, kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party. And so I love that as we talk about joy today, that there is a sense in which we rejoice this good news, but there's also a sense in which God rejoices. God rejoices when he brings us home. And that is a whole other uh, way of thinking about what joy means. And I think that those two together is why it is, uh, why it says, last line, 
Enter Zion with singing, everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. I love this image of uh, gladness and joy overtaking them. And the way that they depicted that in the video earlier of (laughs) the guy sitting there and the girl just like tackles him to give him a big hug. That this gladness and joy just overtakes you. It's like you can't even help it. (laughs) You will be glad. You will have joy. It's just going to, ah, overwhelmingly so. And this idea is what comes back to um, passages like in Philippians when uh, Philippians chapter 4, when Paul writes, uh, oh, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Right? And we hear that and we go, well, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> and it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And that's why we're able to rejoice. And the other part of that that we often miss is when Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always, he's sitting in prison. He's under house arrest in Rome, and he's writing uh, to the church in Philippi, and he is saying, he's talking about the joy that he already is experiencing, even in the midst of this situation. And then you look at Jesus. Jesus, you know, when it says sorrow and sighing will flee away, and we say, I don't know. I mean, Jesus already came, and I still experience sorrow. I still experience sighing. I don't experience all joy all the time. What's going on? And so we look at Jesus who says in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He was overwhelmed with sorrow, not, over, <laughs> not overtaken by joy and gladness. He was overwhelmed with sorrow. But, as Hebrews tells us, because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. There was a joy set before Jesus. He knew where this story was headed. He knew what was on the other side of the cross. And you know what's on the other side of the cross? This is this amazing thing. Talked about the joy that we have, but also the joy that he has. The joy that was set before him was not just that he would be raised to life again. The joy set before him was that because of him taking our sin on him on the cross, he becomes that way that we get to come to the Father. The joy set before him is not that he has life again, He's already got that. The joy set before him is that we would have life again and that we would be reunited with him. This is the joy. And that is the joy that our circumstances can't change. That is the joy that even when we're experiencing the sorrows and the sighings now, we say, yes, but I know where the story's headed. I know the joy of the Lord. I know that Jesus has made it, uh, he has provided for our rescue. He has provided for our salvation. He has provided the way to the Father that we can be reunited with him and overtaken with joy and gladness. This is what we have to look forward to, but it's also something that we can have a foretaste of now, every day, in just a small way of what's to come, of what's to come. So, it is, as I said earlier, a difficult time of year. 
but it's not an impossible time of year. Because in the midst of our sorrows, we know it's not the end of the story. And in the midst of our sorrows, we can still have now joy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.